This is Defenders TV Podcast, looking at The Punisher. Episode 9 is Foster Clunk. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is episode 9 of The Punisher Season 2, where we are looking at Flusterclock. And this is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 215. I am one of your hosts, John. And I'm your other host for this episode, Derek. Chris, unfortunately, can't join us. Uh, had a bit of a Flusterclock himself, so he couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be with us. This is going to get difficult. We're probably only going to say that, that word one more time, uh, because otherwise we're going to totally mess it up, aren't we? Exactly, but I think just to remind all our listeners that we will not have a fluster cluck on this episode. We will be getting straight into our spoiler-filled review. Mm -hmm. Uh, But remember, first of all, get in contact with us if you have any thoughts on this season of The Punisher so far or any particular episode. Please join us over on our Facebook group where you can leave messages uh, over at our spoiler-filled discussion comments. Uh, Just head on over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV Podcast. Mm-hmm. And we have voicemails through our website at DefendersTVPodcast.com. Yep. Just click on the right-hand side tab and leave 90 seconds of your thoughts uh, about the Punisher Season 2. And, of course, we have the traditional email. You can send <laughs> any comments through to feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com. So we cannot wait to hear some of your thoughts, theories, and views on the Season two of punisher yeah we've already got some feedback on the final episode and on the full season as a whole so if you want to send in your feedback for the final episode just mark it season uh, spoilers something like that and we'll read it out in our final episode uh, and make sure you do subscribe to the podcast uh, our main podcast feed is on defenders tv podcast over on any good or evil podcast catcher service uh, check them out uh, just search for defenders tv podcast or pop to our website at defenders tv podcast.com obviously over the rest of this year we're going to be covering other things like captain marvel the next marvel movie obviously event end game is coming up later on in the year as well and we'll be finishing out punisher and also jessica jones when we get a release date for that we will uh, let you know and we'll be covering it on the main feed as well so. yes and like the two of us if you cannot remember maybe what the other marvel film is this year the mm-hmm. big one it is of course spider-man chris wouldn't have forgotten that would he no <laughs> we well, did we did uh, even though we're loving spider-man absolutely love it but i think we were cycling through you know the whole guardians of the galaxy dr strange mm-hmm. thor uh, and of course spider-man will be released basically through sony uh, but obviously with marvel as well yeah. uh, with that partnership but yes. enough of that <laughs> On with some of the episode details. Derek, what have we got here? Yes, this episode was written by Steve Lightfoot, uh, the showrunner of the show, and Ken Christensen. Uh, Ken Christensen already wrote an episode this season. He wrote Trouble the Water, which was an episode from earlier on this season. Uh, He also wrote uh, an episode last season, The Virtue of the Vicious, uh, in season one as well. Uh, But working with the showrunner himself, Steve Lightfoot. Yeah, and Ken has been heavily involved in the writing department for The Punisher, both Mm -hmm. in season one and season two. Uh, Season one, he was a staff writer across all the 
episodes, and he has gone to be the story editor in this season. Yeah. So, yeah, really heavy involvement there. Yes, and the director for this episode is Sally Richardson Whitfield. This is her first episode of The Punisher, but she was an American actress who starred on the TV show Eureka for most of its run. Uh, she's done loads of other stuff, like I Am Legend, the movie. She she was in that movie. There's not much room for any other characters other than Will Smith in that. So uh, so she was one of the other actresses in that movie. Um, she has steadily worked on either side of the camera over the years. She's been doing uh, work in front of the camera and behind the cam- camera for a number of other shows. She directed episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Luke Cage, so we have spoken about her before. And she's also done The Wonderful American Gods, did an episode of Black Lightning as well, and is working on the upcoming DC show Doom Patrol, uh, which is on the DC Universe service as well. Yeah, loads of stuff there from Sally Richardson-Whitfield. Um, so yeah, excellent stuff. Yeah, John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. As Billy Russo and Dr. Dumont consider their future, Billy and his veteran army go on a successful robbery and murder spree through the city. But this makes him easier to track, and Frank Castle learns of his warehouse hideout called Valhalla. Russo also breaks into Madani's apartment and confronts her on his forgotten memories, where she reveals that he killed Castle's family. Meanwhile, Anderson Schultz, now in New York City with his son David, instructs the Pilgrim to place a $5 million bounty on Frank Castle and Amy to draw them out into the open. The large cash prize, assuming survival, inspires New York's worst to pursue the Punisher and Amy, but also reconnects the Pilgrim with his murky past. But as Frank seeks out Billy, a restless Amy leaves the caravan and seeks help from a fellow grifter that leaves her in serious danger. Would you be tempted? Five million dollars to go after Frank Castle and Amy. I wouldn't go near that. That <laughs> is like being asked to swim the English Channel or something like that when it's infested with great white sharks. <laughs> Not a chance. in the water, yeah. yes. No chance. Not a chance. <laughs> but I can see why a lot of very bad people would be tempted. I was kind of expecting that this episode, when I, hear, when I heard that earlier on, I was kind of expecting this episode was going to be like uh, The Warriors. We've talked about this movie many, many times on our show, where you have multiple gangs coming out, all with different styles, trying to kill the Punisher over the course of his tra- traversal across the city to get back to Amy. Just because of the amount of money you're talking about, it could have brought out loads of really interesting serial killers and killers and uh, snipers and people from all across the city. You know? Well, I think that's it. I would probably hire a hitman uh, with a IOU note of $1 million um, and then he can do it for me. And you get the other $4 million, I like. And I can just stroke my white cat and go, ah, the Punisher. <laughs> right, let's get on to our bullet points for this episode, John. Uh, first bullet point is what should have happened in episode four of this show. <laughs> uh, yes. The Schultzes in New York. Yes. Yes, the Schultzes come to New York. Uh, primarily Anderson Schultz comes to meet the Pilgrim. He's practicing his golf game. He's at the driving range mm-hmm. to convince him to effectively put out a contract, a $5 million bounty onto the heads of both Frank Castle and Amy. But he wants him to reconnect with some of his former associates, Mm. former contacts in New York, which I really like this because you do begin to build up the sense of the Pilgrim. You know, we got in episode two or three him with the tattoos that have been removed. So we got a sense of his history here. Uh, And it's really nice to see him almost pull away from that. You know, he he doesn't want to. He says, I'm not sure what will happen, how 
I will react to uh, coming back into contact with um, his former associates. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that he kind of recoils from, from this suggestion. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, um, you know, I think Anderson Schultz does make the, the fair point. We've gone past it trying to keep it quiet at this stage because... Frank Castle was in a huge shootout in the middle of the street with Billy Russo. So um, it it really is one of those, um, let's just get on with this. Let's get other people to do our dirty work here. But I like the fact that it is going to connect the pilgrim, the man in black, uh, to his old associates in New York. And of course, actually, we do get to actually hear the pilgrim's real name. But we'll come back to that at a later uh, bullet point when we discuss a little more his yeah. past, because um, there's other important stuff that happens in this episode. Definitely. With Schultz, yeah, we also get the meeting of David and his father. We've only seen David for a second in a photograph, where it was revealed that he's kissing another man, um, and that was supposed to be the big revelation. We, our big complaint so far this season about this storyline is that we haven't seen the Schultz at all. We haven't heard learned much about Pilgrim. And my joke, really, about that this moment should have happened in episode four is that. This would have given all the impact, really, that you needed. Um, it isn't showing off, really, that David is gay here. It's not showing off that he's doing anything other than following his father's wishes and that he doesn't get on with his father because his father's trying to push him into a political career rather than actually caring for him. All of these things would have been important before finding out what it was that possibly they could have been blackmailed for. And yeah. why Pilgrim is in the city of New York to kill people on behalf of the filters yeah i mean I, th- I think what's really good here is that there is the suggestion because um you know later on we come back to um daddy schultz practicing his golf game again but with david there mm. now and uh you know he he has a really bad shot and he and he and he blasphemes he says oh my god you know or oh god oh damn you get that really nice tense moment where david says what would the um, faithful say if they heard you um, swearing like that? Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, you know, it's one of those things where there are some blasphemes that um, they can forgive. And then as he looks at his own son, there are others that they won't. Um, and I, it's a really interesting uh, moment here because, again, you get the sense that, you know, David feels hemmed in by his dad. You know, he says, you've always talked to me as though it is on the campaign trail, that Mm -hmm. this is about you trying to get me a wife. You know, it's more about party optics than it is about about me, ultimately. So you have this really nice moment where you feel the isolation from his own family, from David. Um, You get the sense of the contradiction here of what the Schultz want to portray publicly as to the more complex idea of what their family actually is and what they're trying to hide. And even to the sense that I kind of felt that the Pilgrim doesn't know that David Schultz is gay either. No, Um, absolutely. And it will be interesting to see if he finds out how his reaction will play out here. Mm -hmm. I think the other great thing is it has a really nice um, broader society uh, discussion, which is, you know, David says to his his um, his dad, who's trying to get him to come back to their small little country hometown to connect with potential sponsors. I think he says, press the flesh with potential sponsors. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the interesting thing is, is uh, David says, you know, the world has moved on, and, and um, you know, it's not going as shocking as it used to be. The fact that he is gay, yeah. Um, 
and I like the idea that his dad says, well, you would be surprised. You know, things haven't moved on all that much either. I think there's a really interesting thing here mm -hmm. about to what extent society or elements of society on on topics that they consider to be controversial either are vocal about it or are that silent um, group that, that only show um their their cards at a certain time and i think that feels as though that's what his father is saying to him yeah. even though david obviously living in new york a very different kind of place to the the family home here where the schultzes anderson and his wife come from it's these two worlds that collide in different ways and it's really interesting i yeah. think it is absolutely and again just would have liked to have seen it a little bit earlier or would have liked Definitely. to see some other stuff connected to it. Even if we had something like uh, David going back to the town to do some of this pressing the flesh work and then they have the conversation, you know. Definitely. Uh, if that had happened sometime earlier on in the season, that would have been great. Having it now is, is good, but it still feels like they haven't said a lot of things. David never once says he's gay or he has a boyfriend or he has a husband or anything like that at all. All he says to his father is, you're probably here to convince me to find a wife. Yeah. Is that what you're here for kind of thing? Um, and you, you're feeling at moments that Anderson is actually looking at his son going, I need to get you out of the city. This city has done things to you. This city is causing you to be gay almost. That kind of thing is in there, but it's not being said. It feels like he just needs to pull him out of the city. So there's there's two kind of contrasting pieces here. It feels like, you know, he possibly is caring for David, saying, get him out of the city while Pilgrim does his work effectively. So there's no blame and there's no blowback on David while he's there. Or it's get him out of the city that's corrupting my son. But David feel, it feels like he ran away from his hometown to get here. Definitely. Um, but it just it just feels, I don't know, there, there's a little bit of balancing that needed to be done for this whole piece about the Schultzes to matter more. And because it's coming at episode nine now, it feels like... Has, is it a little bit too late? It's definitely warranted and definitely needed. Um, I love that little delusional moment in Anderson there, you know, where we have the whole conversation about blasphemy. He's absolutely right. You know, the whole community would not cast him out because he said Jesus Christ on the golf course. You know, they're, they're not that bad. Um, but then, of course, he goes, uh, God gives you everything if you just work for him and then makes a great golf shot and goes, see, as if as yeah. if God is controlling his golf shots. Yeah, I mean, he says living proof that faith is rewarded. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I mean, he's delusional anyway yes. with regards to this, but also, as I say, um, having to keep that lie or having to uh, have that two-sided perspective about who his family is and what he wants to project into the community publicly um you know is a delusional thing to do yeah. um it's not honest either so definitely we really get a good sense of the schultz's here and i agree this is great to have it would have been good to have had it a little bit earlier to mm -hmm. be honest but yeah this is really good to have yes but on to bullet point number two cabin fever amy and curtis get the shakes yes <laughs> they are uh, pent up in the caravan, in Frank's caravan, yeah. uh, just having to deal with one another, the small space, whilst Frank is out on the town, um, not passing, but tracking, trying to track down um, Billy Russo. And these two are, you know, in this small ca uh, caravan, getting slowly sort of cabin fever. Dare I say a little bit of the red mist, you know, getting a bit angry at one another. Yep. Um, and I, I really like the conversation that they have here. They really sort of, 
you know, they're cooped up together, but they open up together about how their life has turned out. You know, Curtis kind of really identifying that, you know, Amy wasn't this kind of precious sort of innocent girl, even before she did meet Frank. Mm -hmm. Um, And how, you know, what would she have liked to have done, really? She talks about being effectively a scuba diver, really, but she can't swim but she's never actually seen the ocean and she's never seen the ocean (laughs) and then you know curtis suddenly has this sort of road to damascus moment this Mm -hmm. kind of light hits him as he realizes why am i cooped up in this caravan you know he's got his own apartment he's allowed his uh, new girlfriend to kind of slide on by because he's been again caught up with frank and all this craziness that is playing out in uh frank's life and amy's life and it's just pulled in like uh, a tornado curtis and you know he realizes also that he's let down his his veterans you know that that his veteran group are all kind of moving to um to work with billy russo or a large portion of them and that there are others there that needs his support, his guidance, and his help. Yeah, I like the fact that Curtis goes back to this group, and it wasn't for the reason that I thought originally when I'd watched the episode. I thought it was exactly as you were saying, John, that he's going back because he doesn't want to let them down, which is what he says to Amy. But in fact, he's going to use his group. He's going to go back to these guys and go, well, Billy's obviously hiring veterans, and you know how much I hate Billy. This is the guy that shot me and beat me up. But he goes, any chance you guys could be on the lookout and find out who he is. We see at the end of the episode, one of the guys actually has made it to Russo's team's hideout. He's dressed up as the homeless guy just outside Russo's camp. So um, so he's made it there. He's gone on the instructions of, uh, of Curtis. Will this lead to more trouble for him or not? We don't know, but it's quite interesting that that's actually was Curtis's plan was to get out and do this. But he's been left in charge of Amy. You know, Amy's a young girl who's on her own and he's been left in charge of taking care of her because Frank always knew she was going to run. We saw that back in episode one and two. This this was a girl that he had to tie to a bed to make sure she didn't run away. And Frank needed somebody to look over her. Um, we hear how angry Frank gets over the phone with Curtis when he comes back and finds out that Amy's gone. Um, and that's partly because... Frank's angry at himself, of course, for leaving her alone and not tying her down to the bed like he did last time, you know? Yeah, again, this was, for me, another little bit of uh, empathy or understanding that just leaked from me with regards to Frank, where he was giving out to Curtis because um, Amy ha- had left. Yeah. You know, Curtis didn't know about the the five million bounty, and you're kind of thinking, well, Frank, why didn't you phone them as soon as you knew that this was happening? Mm -hmm. That's when you needed to do it, uh, to warn them, in case anyone came to the caravan, let alone the fact that they may have walked outdoors or or something like that and had been spotted. So uh, for me, I just felt his reaction here was just slightly ungrateful, and I was kind of like, oh, okay, you really are just so, so horrific. Well, let's quickly talk about that, because last episode, what we were talking about was Frank going to uh, the grave of his wife, Maria, um, and we were talking about that as shorthand for a way of saying that this is Frank resettling himself after going so violent <laughs> that yeah. he pushed himself over the edge. None of us were right on that. I was listening no. back to the podcast and listening back to our discussion on this. None of us got the reason why he went to Maria's grave. What we find, actually, is that he wanted to have the conversation with ghost of his wife kind of thing, obviously, as, we, as we'd as we said. But it was actually that 
he was explaining he's always been this way. He's always been a brutally violent man. We saw that in season one. We saw that moment when he was in the war with Billy at, at the time and went in and slaughtered all of the opponents in Kandahar. We saw those those moments. But he's saying that his wife has accepted him for being that and his family accepted them. And they were they gave him all of their love and all that he brought on them was death. So he's saying now that they're gone and there's no one there to give him love, he is the only person that can be in this position as the Punisher, you know? So it's not out of character is what he's saying to us, the audience, to be as violent and brutal as he is. He's always been this brutal and violent, but he kind of was able to tone it down and shut it off when he had the love of his family around him. I think the only theory that we possibly got right on this, and, I, you know, I don't mean to blow my own trumpet, but it was probably <laughs> me saying... I would fear for his wife and his kids' safety <laughs> if Frank was around, you know, because this was kind of basically saying, well, he was this person and he was this person around his family. And we can see how other families, Micro's family, or indeed, you know, his social family of Curtis, of picking up uh, Amy and mm-hmm. trying to protect her, how it works out for them. Um, and if not... This family, probably the Schultz's family, who knows what may happen to David. And he has nothing, no kind of idea that this is going on. Or even maybe Anderson's wife. Uh, She may not know what machinations her husband is doing. You know, is she fully in on it? So this is kind of, um, I I think for me, I was really shocked because it was like, oh, so you're, you're using your dead wife to kind of justify because you've had this conversation, which in reality is a conversation with yourself to justify the level of violence uh, that you have. I mean, I do understand that the Punisher is a gruff character. He's difficult to connect with. And I loved that in season one with Micro. I thought it was really good. And I love how that plays with Curtis as well, both in last season and in this season. But there is something here where it just feels that um, it's too much uh, for me that... Again, he would have that conversation with Curtis and put it on Curtis, who ultimately does say, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry. But, you know, he, he's been monitoring the, the airwaves on the CB radio mm-hmm. with Amy. You know, he's been looking after Amy. He helped to take down the sniper to protect. So he's helping Frank. And I just feel Frank, it's probably down to the fact that he knows he should have... Uh, protected Amy or stayed with her or he should have called before and he's taking it out on Curtis ultimately but I think when you couple Mm. it to that conversation by the graveside which ultimately is yeah that's how I'm justifying how bad I am is that apparently my dead wife is telling me that I've always been like this right Uh, which no you've just had that concoction yourself (laughs) no I think I think his wife did know and we did see flashbacks to them saying that uh, in season one that they didn't have a perfect relationship and he was argumentative with her as well it wasn't always lovey-dovey and then she was murdered they did have that bit of complexity in their relationship um which I thought was quite interesting back in season one. Uh, but yeah, let's just talk about the other bit that comes out of this. As you mentioned, Curtis and Amy were monitoring the radio for broadcasts from Billy's gang, and they relayed that they found a group that's on a job because uh, Curtis hears one of the kind of call signs that they used to use in the army, so he knows it's uh, this group that, that are going out and attacking uh, people in the city. But this, again, feels like an unusual thing for Frank to do. He walks in, violent and aggressive as he has been all season, and kills every single person without interrogating even one of them. Um, 
that just felt like a weird one for me. I know that he's now more headshot than than leg shot most of the time, but <laughs> he was there to get information on where Billy was and just killed every single person. Then kind of went, oh shoot, why did I do that? You know, that doesn't feel like the Frank that we had last season or earlier on in this season. Again, it feels like Frank is completely losing control of his abilities again. I think I've said this already earlier on in another episode, but this is just another bit of underlining saying Frank's not as good as he used to be. Almost. He's just he's great at killing people, you know, send them straight for somebody that you want killed. But he's not as good as he was in the past at the investigation side. No, definitely. Which and seems I, weird. Yeah, it, it's... And maybe that's because Micro isn't there. You know, there's a lot of that investigative stuff through, um, you know, hacking into databases and stuff with Micro yeah. that maybe sent him down a particular way. Yeah. Uh, and in- I do remember, yeah, Micro was telling him not to kill people uh, a couple of times in last season when he was going after army guys saying, they're just like you, Frank. You can't kill everybody you walk through. So again, we have Frank out on his own here with nobody to tell him, don't kill everybody there. So maybe, yeah, he's messing up a little bit now. Yeah, possibly, because Amy's not there. And again, she was trying to keep him uh, from killing everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. And it, Curtis t- stopped him from strangling Amy and shooting her in the head and the floor. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I like how it comes back to Jake here as well, because Curtis, has, you know, stopped Frank from basically killing Jake as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I do like that when Curtis connects back in with the veterans in his group, that they bring up jake and it's like you did you see what they did to him yeah uh, and curtis has to explain that i think i think that's really good you know that 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 horrific kind of interrogation and brutalization of jake um despite uh, maybe you know whether he was doing good or bad or whatever has been called out and to curtis you mm-hmm. know uh really really nice i think yeah but ultimately, you know, whilst he's out tracking, he does find out about Valhalla uh, and where Billy Russo's group is, where they're kind of partying. They're not really keeping things uh, too much of a secret. But I think on to bullet point three, mm. uh, speaking of Billy Russo, the monster inside Madani's apartment. This, for me, was absolutely the best thing about this episode for me. Um, I absolutely loved Billy creeping into Madani's apartment and that confrontation between the two of them. Oh, yeah. Ultimately, both of these characters were so, so defiant. Uh, I love Madani really stirring down Billy Russo, uh, doing everything she can effectively to get, um, you know, a spare weapon to kill him. Yeah. Uh, I loved how she was so defiant. You know, she tells it to him straight. You know, you went for status, power, and money, and you threw everyone that cared for you under the bus, which was Frank's family, and including Frank. And this is why you have this this scarring. This is why he's after you. You know, there's no pussyfooting around here. Absolutely, yeah. It's straight to the brutal truth of Billy Russo. I, I absolutely love the way she says this to Billy because she's effectively saying to him, you want to know how you got those scars? You got them because Frank is punishing you. He is telling you that you needed to live the rest of your life with the ugliness that's on the inside that we found out about, that me and Frank found out about, with those marks on your face so you see the ugliness. I think Madani's effectively telling him, the only bad part about this is you lost your memory of what happened, so you can't feel the punishment that was given to you by Frank. You know, um, Billy completely twists that, as as he will do all the time. Um, we hear him kind of go, oh, but I'll still punish Frank for doing this to me. You know, it's it's 
very unusual that he's not taking this on board at all. He doesn't feel like he's in the wrong at all here. Yeah, I mean, he well, he still doesn't remember it. Yeah. And I think as well, it's the fact that it's coming from Madonna. And I, I love how he twists it back on her as well. I mean, this is really a power relationship power play that he is trying to do here and i think ultimately it does suggest an underlying badness that madani has consistently said uh, that he is he may have lost his memory he may be struggling to understand what's going on but in this moment you see that underlying badness i think where he tries to use his sexual prowess his you know his former good looks where he he turns to madani and says you must have really liked me, yeah. you know, uh, given how you are really attacking me here. Was it in this bedroom, in this bed? How did it go? You know, he really plays at that. And you can see that that twists uh, at her, really, because yeah. she knows that it was that relationship that effectively unpicked everything down to Stein's death, down to... Um, the whole thing that went down, effectively her getting a bullet in her head. Mm-hmm. You know, she was used and abused, in, in effect. Yeah. And um, most of her flashbacks have been this notion of them, like in the shower, uh, have been the, the, the dreams, the memories have been about him um, and her having intimate moments. And he uses that there and then. And I thought that was really, really yeah. interesting. And, but remember, they have mixed those, of course, with Madani knowing that she's been shot and, and beaten by, by him as well. So she's gotten both of those mixed together, the uh, the sex moments Absolutely. and the, the violent moments that they had, um, which is really interesting. Like, And as I say, Billy going back to Dumont and being really aggressive and angry again about the fact that Frank has turned on him. He's saying to her, I couldn't possibly have done that because I loved his family so much, so this must all be Frank. You know, he just doesn't realize how awful a human being he was, you know? Uh, he still doesn't get that into his head at all. And again, I'm very scared for Dumont here. You know, she seems to be kind of sticking on on his side you know earlier on in the episode we we now know that she absolutely knows that billy's going out stealing because she's saying this eventually has to stop and we can take all of this money that you're that you're stealing and go on the run effectively the two of us can go away so she's really enabling him she's absolutely becoming this partner in crime almost the bonnie and clyde kind of idea you know really is i mean there's a lot of codependency going on between these two characters Mm -hmm. Uh, and i mean I found it really strange here then that, you know, not only do we have the monster inside Madani's apartment, but then Dumont uh, invites Madani to to her apartment. Yeah. Uh, you know, really interesting. And it, it seems to all stem from the fact that he talks about having gone to Madani's apartment to Dr. Dumont, mm-hmm. or, or should I say Krista. Um, we actually, I think, finally get her first name here. Yeah. Um, and... I think we've she, heard it. I just, I just don't think for some reason we've written it down in any of our notes maybe, before. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But it's just, um, it's it's like she suddenly becomes jealous, and that's why she asks uh, Madani over. Mm. But then you have this really weird conversation about Billy Russo. She is trying to understand how Madani has coped with Billy Russo, um, and it's almost like so she can better understand her relationship with billy russo or how she should 
behave around Billy Russo. She's still, you know, there's a jealousy element here. It's, it was really strange. I was not expecting uh, this be- simply because Madonna and her didn't seem to be, um, shall we say, the best of professional colleagues oh, no. <laughs> uh, back in the hospital. And I'm surprised that Madonna took it up and why she did. So, th- I mean, this this seems a little um, unknown to me as to why this happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have to hold this one over till the next episode because yeah. it was just that one scene. The only thing that was coming out for me was the conversation that she had with Billy just beforehand. Billy kind of indicates to her that Madani probably knows where Frank is. Um, because she has worked with them in the past and they have got that relationship. Frank was there at the uh, at the carousel when he got the scars. He knows that now. So it's very likely that they've stayed in touch. So I'm wondering if this was just DuPont's way of getting the information of Frank's whereabouts from Madani, possibly. Yeah, no, I, I think that is also another big reason here uh, is to find the whereabouts of Frank Castle. But I also did take it that there was a a jealousy moment, a green-eyed monster type thing that came from Dumont because of uh, him talking about Madani. And she was, I think she says, says to him something along the lines of, you still have, um, you know, strong memories of your time with Madani. And and then Mm -hmm. she's calling her in and it doesn't only stay on Frank Castle. It talks about uh, Billy Russo. So I I think she's trying to get two things out of this meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also that really quick reflex that you hear from Dumont when Dina's saying to her about Frank Castle and she kind of goes, oh, Frank's so much worse than Billy. (laughs) It's really this kind of moment where she has to defend her man if Madani is going to talk badly about him. And Madani doesn't take it at all. She's instantly going to go, what are you talking about? Billy's the guy that put a bullet in my head, effectively, you know? he's He should never have come back from the injuries that were caused to him, you know? Uh, but a really interesting scene. I really did enjoy it. But you're right, John. This is one of those ones that we're definitely going to have to wait till next episode to find out what the motivation behind Dumont was, uh, whether it was that conversation with Billy or whether uh, she was taking it off her own bat to get some information uh, from Madani. So uh, let's let's wait for next episode on, on it. And go on to our bullet point number four. We spoke earlier on about the Pilgrim. We do see a little bit more of him. We talked about him saying that he didn't want to go back to his old friends. So our point, bullet point number four is the Pilgrim's past and present colliding. Yes, again, I think something that I wish we had seen a little earlier in, in this season. Mm. Uh, I really like this where he, you know, he's putting the bounty out for um the five million on amy and frank and he he heads to a few bars uh, and you get that moment where this kind of uh you know 20 year old kid kind of goes picks up the phone and just says i saw a goddamn ghost Uh, and you're like going wow okay so who is this i mean it seems like an ordinary kind of club slash bar um nothing uh Nothing out of the ordinary, so to speak. But then, you know, we have a great moment where he comes face to face with a guy called Cusack um, mm-hmm. in the bar, uh, just sat there in one of the booths uh, and chatting. And we, we really learn more about the Pilgrim, or as he is called, Robbie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So used to be part of this gang and uh, was out uh driving some of their stuff whether it was drugs or or weapons uh, and the alternator goes on the truck and you get this nice moment where um robbie the pilgrim talks about how that moment changed his life but ultimately he went on the run and left this gang for what 12 years or something yeah yeah i think what they're saying is that he was supposed to be making a buy with a million dollars uh we hear from cusack 
uh, you know, there's a million reasons that you should have come back here. Yeah. Quite literally is what he says to him. So it sounds like he's taken a lot of money. But um, but when when Pilgrim tries to explain this to Cusack, what he actually is saying is that he got into a bar fight. Um, and because of the bar fight, they put him in prison. And while he was in there, he was born again. But he never used his phone call to call them or anything like that. And he'd been gone away for 12 years. So he learned to save himself rather than going on the run as Cusack seems to think what actually has happened is he's changed his entire life and went to prison and came out a true believer. So um, so a little bit different. And what I thought was interesting was the reaction from Cusack was, we thought you were a true believer in our cause. Every single one of us used to follow you like you were the leader of this gang. Um, yeah, even he, though he's not, it's not indicated that he was the leader. It's more he was the one that was giving them their style of how they should be, their brutality, their... Yeah, he uh, was the charismatic one. I think he he talks about how he could always make a good speech to, you know, to rouse the troops. Mm-hmm. And then there's Danny, the bartender, who um, Cusack says, you know, you wouldn't have noticed him at all. He was just a teenager, but he worshipped you. He looked mm-hmm. up to you, and then you left. And, of course, I love the fact that, you know, just saying, giving the, the rousing speech to the soldiers... Then Cusack rolls up his arms, and then you get to the confirmation of this gang, this this far right neo Nazi gang, as he's got the the German military cross tattooed on his forearm, along with a number, uh, and you can imagine uh, what other kind of tats that he's got across his body. But mm-hmm. um, this this is a really sort of difficult moment because obviously then a load of heavies also come in to back up Cusack. Yeah. Uh, and Robbie is just there uh, left sort of grinning and smiling. But we do know that he took his uh, weapon, his revolver with him from the hotel room. True. So um, I have a feeling that things aren't necessarily going to play out too well for this group of people in the bar. Um, but who knows? It could also be tables turned against uh, the Pilgrim as well. Yeah, I'm going to definitely continue to call him the Pilgrim, not Robbie. I don't think uh, I'd be able to use that <laughs> for the rest of the show about this character. And I'm so excited to see what happens with these. This is one of those ones where you're like, in any action movie, the bad guy is being surrounded by other bad guys. Well, that's going to end in violence, isn't it? So either yeah, we will just see the whole place just covered in body parts and blood next episode, or we'll actually see a fight out between all these guys here. But it's going to be really interesting to see next episode, definitely. And really interesting to see this. I'm fine with them leaving this part of the Pilgrim's past until this late in the series, episode nine, because I love the kind of mysterious character. But I just would have liked to see more of him in the show overall. I don't mind not getting the explanation as to who he is and his backstory until late in the show. And now I'm kind of hoping we're going to see uh, maybe a flashback to him in future and see what he was like when he was in this gang. That might be interesting. Yeah, that would be really cool. Mm, We haven't had our flashback episode this season yet, so let's see when that one comes. Uh, Let's get on to our final bullet point, John. Yes, bullet point five. Frank tracks Billy and Amy. Yes, we mentioned that Frank has been tracking Billy. In fact, he turns a bit Batman-y here, I think, really. Uh, We have a moment where he's, as Derek had said, he's, he's killed three people and... In the end, he's had to go to the guy's phone to get the information because he's shot him dead. With the most interesting way of opening up his phone. <laughs> yes. I'm glad the guy didn't have facial recognition. He'd have to carry his head around on his belt or something. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, just it, thumb. <laughs> it was just his thumb. But he, he goes to this bar where he has identified this photo of a girl. And with To begin with, I was like, how on earth did he know to go to that bar and mm-hmm. to that pub? But her t-shirt in the picture has got the pub's name on it yep. so he's gone there he's found her and um 
you know, they, they, he knows about Valhalla. He knows about this place. We've seen Curtis sending his vets to uh, stake out Valhalla as well. We've seen the, the pretend homeless guy with the trolley yeah. taking the whiz. So, yeah, again, it was uh, really, really good. But it, Frank does go all Batman here. Um, it's slightly uh, disbelieving when he comes out of the pub. Five men immediately kind of follow out. And then they lose him after he's turned a corner and he turns up behind them. So, yeah, it was kind of <laughs> like, that's just not possible. That's our superhero moment for yeah, it, season two. Of, it of really <laughs> is. It's like he turns into Mr. Invisible for a moment yeah. and just stayed still. Maybe uh, he has the, the ability to jump really high like Jessica Jones and we don't know about it. Possibly. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, him being at the other end of the the alleyway and then him firing the guns. I, I would get that, you know, or him standing his ground, but they, they come round. They obviously have seen him because they're literally about five meters behind him. They've seen him turn down there mm-hmm. and then they come round there and he's gone. And then all of a sudden he's behind. It just really weird. Um, it took me out of it a bit, but nonetheless, he gets some more information here again after shooting first. Absolutely, but we do get that great line from the from the guy kind of going, "Well, you're never going to beat us." There's six, and then he just just <laughs> yeah. gets cut off by gunfire as four of his guys drop to the ground from uh, from Frank shooting them in the head, <laughs> as usual. You know, it's just a great little moment. But yes, Frank gets the information he needs to know, which is that he's got a bounty on his head. He has five million dollar bounty on his head, and then he runs straight back to uh, to try and save Amy just in case something's going on with her as well. You know, if, if she did pop her head out, as John mentioned earlier on, um, somebody could have seen her and somebody could have found out who she was and gone after her. Um, they all have the photograph uh, shared among them of who Amy is. So she's in very real danger. But when he gets back and finds out that Amy's gone, she's gone, it turns out, to that friend, Shan, that she talked about earlier on in the season. You know, it's interesting that Frank's warning to her when she said, the two of us can go and hide out in Shan's place. Frank's warning to her was, that girl's going to be dead. The minute you even think about going near her place, she's going to be dead. It's a slight flip on that. She's not dead. Um, she actually turns on Amy because of the bounty that's on her head. The minute she tries to get new documents for Amy, and she, effectively she must have shared the photograph with the bad guys who were yeah. doing the documents, and the minute they see it's Amy, well, uh-oh, I think uh, there's going to be some problems here. I really like Frank's comment over the phone, which he says you're the most valuable thing that she's seen ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so get out of there. And I really like that because, yes, uh, Sean turns on her ultimately uh, and Amy really uh, gets uh, into trouble as these guys come after her to take her in and claim the bounty. But thankfully, Frank has given her some of this military training, which she does put to good use against yes. one of the guys. Yes, yes, uh, this is... Absolutely set up from earlier on in the season as she's been practicing this move the whole season, as we've said. Finally shown here where she takes the gun off him, turns the gun on him, and does exactly what Frank told her she has to do if ever she takes a gun off somebody. Always shoot him. Um, You have to be prepared to do it. And she does it immediately as the guy's saying, you're not going to use the gun. (laughs) So, yes, we finally get Amy doing this, but she's completely shaken up until Frank comes in, killing everybody in his wake stands in front of her and she goes, I killed that guy. And Frank goes, no, you didn't. Shoots him in the head and goes, I killed him. Um, So I did see someone call this the most heartwarming family moment in all of the MCU. I assume they're joking, but it is a a good moment. It shows that Frank does care about Amy, I suppose, and that he's willing to put another bit of red in his ledger, as as it's called in the MCU, another dead body, uh, that he's willing to put it on his conscience rather than have it on Amy's conscience. So uh, I suppose it is quite a nice moment there. Yeah, it's lovely. 
Really touching. Yes. It's not. <laughs> I wish I had touching moments like that no. in my life. Always double tap. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. If zombie apocalypse has taught us anything, ladies and gentlemen, double tap. <laughs> Remember, double tap. Because otherwise that zombie comes back to life yes. and bites you on the ankle. And then, hey, presto, you're a zombie. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But not some guy that's got a gun held on you. Uh, but he may have had a smaller gun, you see, or a knife True. or something like that. So, or one of those massive M4 machine guns or something. He could, you know, it could have been like a, a magician where he could pull things out of his trench coat. But ultimately, yes, double tap, even non-zombies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we do have Amy kind of taking it back out on her former friend. I think their relationship is done with her and Shan, regardless of her apology saying, well, they made me do it. I presume she was going to get some money out of this as she was... Coming back into the building, Shan leading all of these guys. Uh, she was saying to them, remember who it was that brought it to you? So she is lying to Amy here that they forced her to do it. They did tie her up uh, on the on the couch while they took care of Amy and while they, while they went looking for Amy. But I feel like Shan was actually involved in this. And the punishment she gets is a kick straight to the crotch. And yeah, a big I'll... smile from Frank after, he's, after Amy's done it because he's kind of going, okay, this kid is definitely growing on me here, you know? And, of course, it shows to Frank that non-lethal force is also a viable alternative. He's never going to accept that, John. <laughs> you even hear it in the next conversation that Amy <laughs> has with him where he's going, but, Frank, what if Billy kills you? And Frank goes, no, no, hang on a second. I'm the one that kills people. Billy's not going to kill me. I'm the one that kills people. You know? It's yeah. like it's only when he messes up that other people die. Yeah, fact, exactly. Saying. There's some serious overconfidence here from Frank. Big I have a time. feeling he may uh, be going to regret that in a future episode. Yes, I, I think so too, yeah, yeah, definitely. Any notes for this episode, John? Just that Minden whiskey is obviously the whiskey of choice in The Punisher. We see it being used like a cheap bourbon in, in the caravan by Curtis Amy mm-hmm. uh, and Madani, and then it shows up in Madani's uh, apartment as well. Now, whether she nicked that from the caravan... Who knows? She could have been a sly field officer there. And, well, she and wouldn't want to it. leave it to, for an underage girl to be drinking. You know, it's a, a 21s is drinking age in the US, so Amy would possibly be reaching in and drinking the bourbon if, if uh, Madani hadn't taken it. Mm. Weirdly, though, it also shows up in the club with Cusack and the Pilgrim sitting at the table. And Cusack is calling this top shelf whiskey. It's not cheap bourbon that, uh, that it seemed to be when we were talking about it in the, in the caravan. He calls it top shelf better yeah. than the kind of stuff they used to drink back in the old days. I tell you what, it is like 80 days around the world for this bottle of whiskey, <laughs> or bourbon, I should say, yes. um, for sure. But yeah, Minden whiskey, not real, but certainly there, popping up around New York in The Punisher. <laughs> I think that's it for notes uh, on the episode and our bullet points. John, do you defend this episode of The Punisher? Season 2, episode 9, Fluster Cluck. I do defend this episode. I give it three and a half par threes out of five. <laughs> yes, um... That's a nice drive uh, for for this episode mm-hmm. uh, for me. I really like the fact that we got the Schultzes and we got David Schultz and we got some backstory of the Pilgrim, a.k.a. Robbie. It, this is just really good and I wish it had come earlier for me, um, but I'm glad we've had this exposition of, of of these characters to some extent and the mystery still remains there, I think. Um, you know, 
it was really nice delving into this new thing for the Punisher in those first three episodes. And then we've come to New York and they've kind of been lost or they've been left behind in the countryside, really. Mm -hmm. And it was nice to see them make that scary trip to the big city um, and (laughs) to really understand a bit more of these dynamics, you know. That, for me, was great. And I think, as well, the confrontation between... Dina Madani and Billy Russo, who's crept into her apartment. Just fantastic. The best thing here. Those two actors are phenomenal so in, in how they confront one another. This really did feel like the rushing season, uh, you know, with Diaz and, and the stags facing off here uh, to, to do battle. Mm-hmm. And it was really nicely done by, by both of these um, I thought Dr. Dumont, again, it, real weirdness to her um, here. And I, I think we just need to find out a bit more about why she brought Madani into her own uh, safe zone and, and her apartment uh, for me. Uh, there's a few things a little unclear, but I, I'm, increasingly it's more this crazy codependency that has been established between Billy and her. Um, and then... Yeah, with Amy and Curtis, you know, again, that's feeding in to, to Frank's story. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I think for me, it was the the Schultzes, the Pilgrim and Russo and Madonna here that made me defend this episode for sure. I thought they were really, really good elements uh, to uh, this episode. Derek, do you defend this episode of The Punisher, Fluster Cluck? Yeah, absolutely defend this episode. They're right on track here uh, for me for this for this show. Uh, really good episode. Absolutely needed that moment with um, for things to slow down a little bit and get a little bit of history on the Schultzes, as you mentioned, John. Um, I still not a fan of Punisher, but I think that's where they're going this season. Is I don't think they want them to be seen as a hero, so I'm going to watch the rest of the season with that on my mind because all I've been thinking for the last couple of episodes is how am I supposed to even like this guy uh, because of the things he does. There are some fun moments in here. From the violence side, where you have Frank taking off the finger of the guy to open up the uh, the phone so he can get his information, and then casually just showing it off at the bar that he's got this finger in his hand, and then dunking it into yeah. the, uh, the the bar owner's drink uh, as a tip, uh, as he says. Uh, fun little moments there. Um, the gang that, that come upon Frank and say to him, "There's six of us here." Oh, <laughs> not anymore, you know. Yeah, uh, exactly. Fun little moments, I suppose, in in the violence there this time. So, um, so this is kind of the level that I want to see the show playing at when they go to the, go to their violent sides. Um, but yes, definitely defend this episode. Excellent stuff. Well, with that, on to some feedback. We have some feedback on episode 9 that has come through from our Facebook group. Remember, you can head on over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV podcast and you can leave any feedback or discussion points on any of the feedback spoiler posts uh, that you want to on any of the episodes please uh, head on over but Kirsten Howe has provided some for episode nine she goes the guys following Frank out of the bar proved that acting and not monologuing is the way to defuse the situation also he proved that picking up a hitchhiker can actually have some real benefits what is the point of Krista meeting with Madani is she completely insane Maybe. Uh, Like she's proved so far, or is she finally coming back to Earth and doubting her recent romantic escapes? Having a girl-to-girl talk 
about their shared experience to really brighten your day, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And finally, we begin the Pilgrim story after over half a season. Uh-huh. Frank getting Amy out of trouble was fantastic. Amy's reaction to killing that man was very believable, and she used Clusterfluck perfectly. <laughs> nice. Um, Kristen finally says, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what Pilgrim does with the 30 guys surrounding him. I can't think this will end well for the masses. Thanks, Kristen, for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think with Krista Dumont, what is going on there? And yeah. I think we need to just see how that plays out in episode 10. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, I think Amy's reaction to killing that man, you know, running through that kind of uh, programmed movement to disarm him and then shooting him. I think it really was nicely done, actually. It's not something I've really pulled out of this episode, but I I completely agree that she um, was very believable um, in terms of uh, her reaction to what she had just done. And I do feel across this uh, season, she's been really believable about her reaction to Frank's violence as well. So I think it's been really quite good. Um, to to add that sort of um, bit of reality to actually what Frank does. Um, And similarly to you, finally, we get the Pilgrim story. We get the Schultzes. We get some more uh, meat on those bones for sure. Yeah, definitely. Really, really needed um, to have that throughout this throughout this episode and and throughout this season. A little bit more, as you said yourself, Kristen, uh, having that a little earlier in the season would have been would have been nicer. Yeah, definitely looking forward to the next episode where we'll hopefully see a bit more of the Pilgrim and what he does to those guys all around him. Um, thanks so much for that feedback, Kristen. Really good to hear from you. We also got a little bit of feedback from Bob Phillips on episode eight. He says, so it wasn't a very long car chase. <laughs> But we did get a good bit, and we did get to see a bit more of the tortured mind of a crumbling FBI agent and the skillful cleanup and police investigation of a murderous bank robbery. I was a bit right. And we added to this that the vigil and the rising speech of King Billy to his disciples of doom, the Jigsaw Army, grows. Yes. Bob has also taken to calling Madani the Agent Who Shields. I like it. That's a, that is a great nickname for Madani. That is a really, really good nickname for sure. I'd, <laughs> in fact, she would be perfect on a probably a 16 plus Agents of Shield. Yeah, oh, she'd be great. Anybody would be great on Agents of Shield because it's such an awesome show coming back this summer. Um, Bob also says a better podcast for episode eight. He said, "Great podcast again. Love the angst about the tipping points in here. Uh, do we need shortcuts or are we relying on tropes?" Is showing Frank going too far, being an uncontrolled baddie who needs someone else to rein him in, or is it making us unable to call him tough but fair? Is the Dr. Billy lead-led switching inconsistent or demonstrating codependencies? Really liking it. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, that's kind of where we are. It's because we're probably so far into the series at this stage, eight episodes into the series, and we're not exactly sure what the showrunners are expecting us to feel about some of the characters here. We're not sure whether Billy's supposed to be the bad guy who is always bad, even though he doesn't have the memory of being bad, or whether he should be feeling sorry for, for him. I've seen people with the reaction that they're feeling really sorry for Billy Russo. Well, he's the one that killed Frank's family, you know? He's the bad yeah. guy. He was the bad guy in season one. He got his punishment and hasn't had to actually feel the punishment because he doesn't know what happened. So he just knows that he's been hurt. And in this episode, we hear that he still wants to go after Frank. So... He's still the bad guy, right? So, but should we be feeling sorry for him? I'm not getting a kingpin vibe from him still in episode nine. I'm not getting that vibe where I'm going, he had a difficult life and I feel a little bit sorry for how he grew up 
for him to turn it on us. I'm still just feeling he doesn't remember. When he does remember, he's going to just turn back into that bad Billy. And I like the call out from Dina Madani in this episode saying, you still have all, all of that in you. You're still making the same decisions you would have made whether you had your memory or not. Yeah, definitely. I, I think... Um I think it's really good between those two, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I, I think there's a lot of, is it this way or is it that way that we need to kind of really begin to see? And, and certainly I think for me, uh, Bob, you, you've pulled one, which is the Billy Russo and Dr. Dumont relationship. What is that? What is going on? As you say, is it this codependency or is it something that is just not really being handled consistently by um by the writers here maybe yeah. i i don't know again it, it's those scars on her body it would be good to get some idea i think this episode was when i first saw the folded uh, american flag on her fireplace mm -hmm. and i was just wondering is that hers or was it her husband's or, or something like that did she have a husband yeah so are those scars actually from being out in battle or something and that's why she can connect with billy russo because of that experience in battle in war um so it, it it's kind of something i think that will be pulled out a bit more and i, I really hope so yeah yeah, and thanks again, Bob, for your feedback. Totally right and very interesting uh, ideas in here. Just one, one other thing that Kristen mentioned there uh, in her feedback about having uh, this conversation between Madani and Krista and having Madani come over to Krista's apartment. Again, it's something that just popped into my head in this episode, in episode nine. After the visits that she was paying to Billy in hospital and her kidnapping him, we haven't actually seen her outside of her apartment at all. We mentioned it earlier on in the season, in like episode four, episode five, I think we mentioned that um, possibly she's agoraphobic, possibly that's the issue that she has, um, that she's dealing with. But at this stage, nine episodes in, you would think she would have left her apartment at some stage, that she would have called Madani and said, I'll come out for a coffee and meet you and we'll talk about this. Why is Madani coming to her apartment? Why is everything centered on Krista inside, indoors or in her apartment? And why is she having this problem when she's looking out the window that she's seeing the ground move away from her like uh, in vertigo, something like that. It, that still hasn't been resolved. And they are definitely laying a trail here of her only being in her apartment for all of her scenes. Like she's there all the time. We have Billy coming, going, coming and going as he pleases. And she's always there when he wants to come back. It's not like she's got night working hours from nine to five at some other residence. She has people come and visit her to, to, to do their meetups with her, as we saw with Jake earlier on in the season, you know? So, is there something bigger here that's happened since Billy kidnapped her and got out of the hospital with her? Which is quite interesting. Even though in this episode she talks about running away with Billy. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I just think there, there needs to be a little bit more here as well. And, and again, I think um, I think we might begin to get it. Mm -hmm. It really felt that this um, kind of took us out a bit of a lull, I think, that was beginning to happen mm -hmm. uh, within the series. And, and it whether it was connecting with, as I say, the Schultz and um, and the Pilgrim, which just, it felt fresh from the previous episodes. Yes. Um, so that was really, really nice. Or just having some really power performances here uh, in the in the episode was, was, was really, really nice. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for all the feedback. Keep it coming. It's really good to hear from you. Uh, remember... 
that you can subscribe to the podcast at DefendersTVPodcast.com. You can connect with us on any punishing or pacifist uh, podcast catchers. Nice. Um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Remember, share the podcast uh, and share the love. Yes, fellow Defenders, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next time with our episode 10 review of The Dark Hearts of Men, which is the next episode. Hopefully that'll be out on Friday. We're actually going to be away at that time, so we're really hopeful that we can get the episode out while we're away. It may just be a little bit later uh, after that, but we will be recording it very soon. So make sure you stay subscribed to DefendersTVPodcast.com and it will pop up as soon as we have it available. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again next time. Yeah, as always, fellow defenders, it is a pleasure speaking with you. I'm going to try and find a flustering bottle of Minden bourbon. Uh, and after I've found it, probably in Dina Madani's uh, apartment, but I'll try not to sneak into it to get it. I will go straight to the door and, and ring the bell. Uh, <laughs> and hopefully once the hangover has gone past and yeah, we've managed to get back, we'll speak with you again shortly. Bye. Bye. This is Defenders TV Podcast, looking at The Punisher, Episode 9. What a fluster clock. (laughs) (laughs) You can't keep that up, John. You'll have to do it a different way. This is Defenders TV Podcast, and this is Foster Clunk. <laughs> really? Yeah. Are we going to go that way?